this is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This is episode 57, Incivility in the Workplace with Drs. Joshua Lee and Kelly Gallant. This episode was released on From the Head of the Bed back in June of 2020. George Floyd was murdered the day that we recorded this podcast, and for the first 10 minutes, I talk about social and racial justice in the United States and how that context includes anesthesia training and work environments. This show is being reintroduced on Anesthesia Guidebook on December 11th, 2021. And as we know, George Floyd's death sparked international protests that brought attention to police brutality and systemic racism and gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. We also know that Derek Chauvin, the former police officer who murdered George Floyd, was convicted of that crime in April of 2021 and is serving a 22 and a half year prison sentence. In this podcast, Joshua, Kelly, and I discuss workplace incivility. As the pandemic has stretched on for nearly two years, and while we weathered a bitter exchange of the U.S. presidency in January of 2021, fatigue and burnout have crept into many hospitals, universities, and other organizations around the nation and world. Incivility is on the rise, even since we first released this show. One potent example is when Republican U.S. Representative Paul Grossar of Arizona tweeted a cartoon video in early November depicting him murdering his colleague, Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and physically attacking President Biden. While he was formally censured by the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives, most of his Republican colleagues stood by his actions. In any other professional work context in the United States, if someone posted a cartoon video of them killing a colleague and then squared off defending the video's content, that employee would be fired. Yet these are the times that we're living in. This podcast zeroes in on workplace incivility, and Joshua and Kelly offer perspectives on how we can foster healthier work environments, where even people who share different beliefs and backgrounds can treat one another with respect and dignity. And with that, let's get to the show. I want to start off with this podcast, which is coming out near the end of June in 2020 by acknowledging and speaking to recent events. I recorded this podcast on workplace incivility with Dr. Josh Lee and Dr. Kelly Gallen on May 25th, which is the day George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. In the four weeks that have passed since that day, the United States and much of the world has been thrown into turmoil as individuals and communities confront systemic racism and the phenomenon of police brutality and excessive force. More black individuals and people of color, men, women, and trans individuals, have been violently murdered since May 25th, some at the hands of police in confrontations that did not warrant lethal force. I've spent the last month reading, reflecting, and absorbing these realities. I've reflected on systemic racism in our culture, the fact that the system is rigged in favor of white people, and even more so, rich white people, that our nation was founded with racial discrimination, slavery, and injustice as protected and promoted values in our institutions and communities, that we persist now, here in 2020, with powerful undercurrents and overt expressions of racial inequality and socioeconomic injustice in our nation. These inequalities, injustices, prejudices, and biases are present in our police departments, in our businesses, our hospitals and healthcare practices, and in our schools and universities. 
it's timely, albeit tragically, that we have this podcast pulled together on workplace incivility. We were asking questions and discussing topics when we recorded this on May 25th that, while not overtly focused on racism, would resurface in the following month over and over again. Why do some people treat others so poorly? Why do some individuals harness power gradients and social hierarchies to inflict incivility, pain, and suffering on those who are perceived as less than or other? Josh and Kelly have also been reflecting this last month. Josh heard the following from one of the former SRNAs and now CRNAs that he works with. SRNAs can experience incivility in the hospital for many different reasons. We are nurses in a physician-dominated environment, and we are learners in a stressful environment. However, for black and brown SRNAs, this incivility can feel familiar and possibly remind us of prejudice we have experienced in other aspects of our lives. OR incivility is wrong, and the experience can be triggering and more complex for minority SRNAs, who must navigate whether this incivility is because we are nurses, learners, or the color of our skin. Navigating racism adds to the challenge of nurse anesthesia training, especially when mentorship is not an option. But we have and will continue to overcome these obstacles. That's a powerful message, and I'm stoked that she was able to share that with Josh uh, and then forward that along to our listeners. I also want to acknowledge that for some SRNAs and many other kinds of providers in healthcare, the burdens they face may seem completely overwhelming. They may feel like there's no way out or no way forward. Which brings me to another event that I want to talk to you about. Last week, a SRNA reached out to me looking for help in processing the suicide of her classmate. I won't share their names or the school as to help protect their privacy, but her classmate took her life with little over two months to go until graduation. As listeners of this show may recall, one of my own classmates committed suicide during our anesthesia training program. I talked a little bit about this on the episode that I did a few years ago called Hardship in Anesthesia School. When we consider these recent events, the worldwide uprising against systemic racism and police brutality, and the story of this SRNA who couldn't see a way forward under the weight of what she was facing, it brings home the fact that we have deep and complicated problems endemic in our culture, both as a society and specifically as a healthcare and anesthesia community. In this episode, Josh and Kelly and I talk through the multiple variables that contribute to workplace incivility. We use that term generally, and I hope that it doesn't lose its meaning. As we listen to this conversation, I want us to remember that workplace incivility can encompass racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, white privilege, economic power gradients, professional privilege and power gradients that are unique to healthcare and academic institutions, and many other types of aggressions and microaggressions and prejudices and injustices. Anesthesia training, whether you're an SRNA, an AA, or a physician resident, can be brutal, like in and of itself, because of the demands of learning this discipline and art form in rigorous academic settings. And workplace incivility and all that it entails heaps pressure, pain, and suffering onto our learners. As clinical educators in powerful positions with our learners, we would do well to remember, as Kelly eloquently states in this podcast, that we are all human and deserve mutual respect based upon that humanity. And I hope that the anesthesia learners who are listening remember, as Kelly also eloquently states, that you will get through this 
that your hard days will pass and you get to reset each new day that comes and approach a new clinical day with fresh energy and a new start. Josh also says some pretty good stuff in this podcast, but Kelly, you get all the shout outs early on. So sorry, Josh. These are tough times between the worldwide pandemic, the economic depression and fallout that's still to come, including possibly hospital closures in rural settings across the United States, school shutdowns and clinical furloughs, and then the re-exposure of systemic racism and police brutality that has been widely and robustly protested. These are heavy times for many people, but especially for Black, Indigenous, people of color, and lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, and other individuals. I hope that you find some positivity in this podcast. I hope that you hear the hope in what we discuss, that there is a way forward. There is a better way to do things. And it starts with me. And it starts with you. It starts with each of us as individuals taking a look around and recognizing what's really going on. Being honest about the fact that we have systemic forces built into and protected within our institutions, governments, and ways of life that systematically marginalize people along racial, gender, sexual orientation, and economic class lines. It takes an awareness of these injustices to begin to undertake the work of dismantling them. And if I have not been clear, Black Lives Matter, the lives of Black women matter, the lives of Black trans individuals matter, the lives of individuals who are economically disadvantaged matter, and the rest of us, white folk, rich white folk, have some work to do. And to that end, allow me to introduce to you my esteemed guest on this episode, that addresses workplace incivility. Josh Lee is a professor of anesthesia at Northeastern University's nurse anesthesia program and a staff CRNA at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. He serves on the board of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation and focuses on burnout and creating healthy work environments as his area of research and publication. He has spoken extensively on the topics both nationally and internationally through his work with the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation, and is a member of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists Health and Wellness Committee. Josh holds his Doctorate of Nursing Practice as well as his Master's of Business Administration. Kelly Gallant recently completed her anesthesia training at Northeastern University in Boston. She received her bachelor's degree from Northeastern in 2010 and spent eight years working in the surgical intensive care unit as a registered nurse while researching pediatric pulmonary hypertension and caregiver reactions as part of her PhD, which she completed at Northeastern in 2017. Kelly then returned to school to study anesthesia, completing her Master of Science at Northeastern in May of 2020. Kelly was the fiscal year 2019 SRNA representative to the AANA Health and Wellness Committee and recently contributed to a podcast here on the show about SRNA wellness. One last comment before I bring you Josh and Kelly. We mentioned in this episode that uh, the show notes will contain a wealth of information and resources related to our discussion on workplace incivility. We also include the contact information for Josh and Kelly. And as always, you can reach out to me through a comment on the website or by email. We are here for you. 
So are the AANA and other national organizations that provide counseling and crisis intervention services. One that I especially want to let you know about is the Crisis Text Line. It's a free 24-hour counseling service for individuals in crisis, and it's available through text. You don't even have to talk to someone on the phone. Text literally anything, figuratively anything. Uh, they say the word home, but you really you can in anything that you type in your phone. If you text 741-741, the service will ask if you want to connect. You say yes, and then it connects you to a real person via text message. The number again is 741-741. It's free. You should check it out. Print out the number and logo and put it up in your anesthesia school. Uh, well, your school is probably still shut down. So go to crisistextline.org, screenshot it, and put it on social media. All right. The intro itself has been a podcast. So thanks for listening, and thanks for the work that you do as part of the anesthesia community. What you do matters, and what you do is profoundly important. And with that, here's the show. Doctors Kelly Gallen and Joshua Lee, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I wanted to reach out to both of you to talk about workplace incivility. So let's start by kind of getting a, a handle on what that means. Josh, I wonder if you would just define what workplace incivility means for the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like even with the increased media attention on bullying and harassment in schools and the workplace, there can still be some confusion on what constitutes incivility. So incivility can be defined as rude, dismissive, or aggressive behaviors that hinder mutual respect and professional relatedness. For anesthesia professionals who often practice in high-stress environments like operating rooms and procedural areas, incivility can take a lot of different forms. A violent emotional outburst from a member of the OR team, maybe it's a dismissive tone from the receiving clinician during pass-off, or maybe I go to give Kelly her lunch break and while she's giving me a report, I set the timer on the anesthesia machine. You know, each of these real world examples consists of an action that undermines, you know, the dignity and respect a healthcare provider or learner expects and really has the right to at their place of practice. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, not, yeah, the, the timer on the anesthesia machine has <laughs> definitely happened a couple of times to me. Uh, Kelly, me I wonder, too. yeah, do you have anything to add to that in terms of just how you kind of conceptualize workplace incivility? Uh, very similar. Um, and I would just like to add that it costs healthcare so much for this workplace incivility. The loss of productivity is estimated, and this is nurse-to-nurse uh, -nurse bullying, not CRNA-specific, but the cost was estimated at around $3.6 billion in loss um, just for cost of turnover. CRNA-specific facts that I found. Oh, gosh. Because I found a really good CRNA-specific workplace incivility study. Oh, Kelly, it's Omblad and Colleagues, E-M-B-L-A-D. Yes. Oh, that's the 2014. That pulled up. Yes. Yeah. There's a direct correlation between burnout and incivility, and they found moderate levels of burnout. Yes. Oh, thank you, Josh. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. I'm here to help. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Uh, so... Kelly, you just graduated from Northeastern University's anesthesia program, at which Dr. Lee is a professor, and you passed board, so congratulations. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats, oh, Kelly. Hi. 
Yay! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if you would speak for a minute on the kinds of negative experiences that SRNAs can have as learners in the clinical environment, since it's fresh in your mind coming out of your anesthesia training. <laughs> um, first of all, I'd like to focus on the positives just for a second. Okay. Um, the, the CRNAs at my clinical site at Lawrence, that was my primary site, they were super supportive. Um, it was a very positive experience for me, and especially towards the end, towards COVID, they were extremely supportive of our situation that was unrolling on a week-to-week basis. And I just like to say, overall, my experience was 99.9% positive, but um, the lows were really harsh. Um, so I think the most major negative for me was the power gradient. The power gradient was really it was really overwhelming for me because one poor performance evaluation at the end of the day could mean that you're asked to leave your program. Um, so there is a very real power gradient there. And at one point I myself had a poor review and it was based off a misunderstanding of a question that I had asked during rounds. Um, and I ended up having to address that with uh, a one to two page personal essay about what happened. Um, so that made that situation very real for me, um, that one poor performance eval could lead to your dismissal from the program. Um, I think incivility to the SRNA, it sets up poor communication and it, this, this power gradient could lead to targeting of certain SRNAs, which I also saw at various sites as well. And at that point, you yourself are so exhausted that you're just like, oh, thank goodness it's not me. But it's not okay to target a certain SRNA to receive excessive criticism. Um, And I think it's important to remember that SRNAs are really struggling uh, with outside of clinical stressors as well, especially financially. Um, There's just so much beating you down in life that it's really difficult to deal with incivility in a learning environment just because they're so vulnerable as it is. Um, It just makes it that much more difficult. So I think um, my major negative experience was actually in a teaching hospital. Um, It was around July. It was a major uh, number one ranked teaching hospital in our area. And I was paired with an attending. And at that point, the ANA had just come out um, with some um, incendiary statements about um, the physician anesthesiologist. Um, So the attending actually told me, I don't like having SRNAs at 6.30 in the morning. And it just set the tone for the day. And it was just so disheartening. I think everyone should be treated as a human, whether or not they're an SRNA or a physician resident. Um, So that was a little bit inappropriate. I did try to address that today. Um, It didn't really do much for me. I didn't change any minds, but I was slowly trying to crack away at you know, trying to get along with my attending because obviously you have to, because at the end of the day, the day there's this power gradient and they are in the end doing your performance evaluation. Um, so that was particularly difficult for me. It was a very difficult time um, just in my transition in the program. And it was probably my low point at, at that point. I mean, you just kind of feel like you want to melt into the floor. Um, I found that Believe it or not, um, guided imagery really helped me with this. Um, Valley, when I went to their review, they actually have a section on test-taking anxiety and some very simple guided imagery that really, really helps. Um, Basically, you envision a stop sign and you see the white letters STOP on red and you see all the sides of the stop sign. Everyone's seen a stop sign, so it's a really common image that you can really conjure in your mind. And it just helped focus my stress that day so much. 
And also I developed like a mantra that everything is temporary. I'm able to go home. Some of these people in the hospital cannot go home. And I just treated that as a real opportunity that I get to go home, I get to eat, I get to sleep, and I'll come back tomorrow and it will be better. Yeah. I mean, there's so much in all of that that you just said. I think one of the things that I love that you said is that we're all human. And I think that has been one of the underlying currents in my own professional life that has helped shape my behavior, both in in kind of internally responding to those power gradients that are prevalent in all of healthcare, not just anesthesia training as an SRNA, but you know, from CRNAs to anesthesiologists and from anesthesia providers to surgeons and hospital administrators at the, at the beginning and at the end of the day and everywhere in between, we're all human and we have human needs and human stressors and human emotions. And I think that has been something that's really anchored me in just being able to treat people with compassion and also recognize that everyone deserves an equal level of respect. Josh, you have anything to um, add in there or respond to you? Well, I am so glad that that was the minority experience that you had there, Kelly, that that was (laughs) isolated. Um, And I'm glad that we're having this conversation after that you've passed boards and you've persevered and you didn't let those one moments define your entire experience and that you kept moving forward because, you know, uh, we're going to be a better profession for having you in it. And if people um, let those moments define them and left, you know, their education because of it, um, we wouldn't be as strong of a profession. So, I'm so glad that you're here with us. I'm glad you passed boards. And but I am sorry that you experienced that. And hopefully we can, you know, do things through this conversation and beyond to uh, change, you know, what the learning experience is like for, you know, all learners, SRNAs, residents, you know, everybody. Thank you, Josh. And it actually was a real teaching experience for me because it made me realize that maybe a huge teaching facility is not a good fit for me. Um, I actually took a job at Lawrence and it's kind of a smaller outside of the city hospital. And I think that's a, that's a better fit for me. Um, nothing against the physician anesthesiologist there. It was a very isolated incident. Um, but it taught me a lot about what I'm looking for in a workplace as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, and Josh, what a great answer, man. Um, yeah, thank you for validating Kelly's place in the anesthesia community. Uh, that's it's so easy to skip over, but um, yeah, thanks for doing that. I'm, Kelly, I'm stoked that you made it through. And I also yeah, I feel that way about so many different CR, uh, SRNAs that get through. Just like nursing school, things change so rapidly, I think, once you get out of school and you don't have that similar power gradient that's going on. And it can take it can take so much for SRNAs to pull through and to deal with the incivility that they experience, the power gradients that they're in, uh, but it's worth it. And and ultimately, we need good people to get through their programs and uh, to hopefully bring forward a different way of behaving in the workplace, you know, to break those negative chains that they experience, which we'll talk a little bit about um, a little bit more in the, in the podcast. But Josh, I was wondering if you could help us just get a handle on how big of a problem is workplace incivility? I mean, how, how prevalent is this? And how does that influence burnout in healthcare providers, including learners like SRNAs and residents? Workplace incivility can and does happen anywhere. Broadly speaking, 2 million workers are victim to workplace incivility each year. And despite the philosophy of doing no harm, the healthcare industry is no exception to trends in the workplace incivility. Specific to the anesthesia community, it's reported that 98% of attending anesthesiologists have been exposed to disruptive behaviors. 
80% of CRNAs experienced some type of aggression, and trainees were subjected to acts of incivility several times per week. And to your second question, research does suggest that incivility is correlated with burnout. In 2014, Mblet and colleagues investigated incivility and burnout among 385 CRNAs and reported a direct correlation between the two. In turn, burnt-out healthcare providers are more likely to experience physical and mental problems like cardiovascular disease and also depression, as well as relationship problems with both their colleagues, but also within their own families. Burnout's also bad for patients that we care for because it decreases their health outcomes and increases their risk for medical errors. And then finally, burnout actually plummets, and, and, and civility as well, plummets the sustainability of healthcare organizations by increasing absenteeism and turnover among healthcare providers. So incivility is a large problem, both uh, in the workplaces in general, but specifically in the healthcare setting, and incivility is directly correlated with burnout. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you know these are not just one-off occurrences, uh, and it's also not just like a bad apple kind of problem. It's not like the, well, there's one clinician that you know in some organizations maybe there are, but this is a widespread issue in healthcare that has ripple effects that are that are profound. Um, what what do you all think is the underlying motivation for people who? you know, engage in aggression or bullying or other kinds of workplace incivility? I mean, why do people treat others so, you know, especially learners, why do people treat people so poorly uh, in the clinical environment? Any thoughts on that? I think in the medical profession specifically, I don't think anyone's out there purposefully trying to be cruel. I think it's just a cycle that they've learned either through, you know, nonverbal communication, through um, their advisors or mentors, and it's just a cycle that kind of repeats. Um, programs don't really teach you how to teach. And I think that was my issue that I encountered as well. Just I, I started there July 1st. So fellows were now becoming new attendings. And I think they just didn't really know how to teach, um, which made it very difficult. I think maybe programs should address this. Yeah. Josh, any thoughts on that? Like the root yeah, causes or motivations that people have? Yeah. It's a great question. I wish I had a straightforward answer for it. You know, like what motivates clinicians to engage in disruptive behavior? It's just, it's just not universal. There are a variety of different factors like I don't know, stress, production pressure, personality conflicts are, are a few that come to mind. But you're right that learners are victims to like a disproportionate amount of instability within the clinical setting. And I can't help but think that factors like hierarchies, tribalism, and to Kelly's point, the lack of preceptor training play a role. The good news is, is that those factors are modifiable. And there are clinicians and organizations that are working to address them to improve learning environments and promote things like psychological safety in the clinical setting. Yeah, that's a good word. I wonder if you, uh, either of you could speak to a little bit about how you think the experiences that we have and our own clinical training as SRNAs end up shaping the way that we precept and teach in the future. Because you've both mentioned that, you know, programs aren't really providing concrete training on how to be a clinical preceptor or a clinical uh, educator. I want to talk a little bit about that in terms of, you know, what do you think the role of programs should be in terms of training SRNAs to be clinical preceptors? Is there a role for that? Is that something that should be incorporated in programs? which we can talk about here in a minute, but um, yeah, how do you think that all of that kind of 
jives together in terms of our experience as SRNAs shaping the way that we end up teaching in the future? Well, I think we've all heard the idiom that nurses eat their young, which yeah. is always striking to me that America's most trustworthy profession has a problem <laughs> with hazing. <laughs> I mean, exactly, right? Right. Learning a new role is already so stressful, but to make matters worse, learners, not just new nurses, but, you know, a lot of different healthcare specialties have to navigate getting a hard time from their preceptors. You know, and to Kelly's point, I think, you know, hazing perpetuates this rite of passage idea yeah. and perhaps plays a role in why clinicians model this behavior even years later when they become preceptors. It's really an unhealthy cycle. Kelly, any thoughts on that? Your, how your experiences in SRNA might shape the way that you teach or precept in the future? Uh, definitely. Um, I think if you've been beaten down multiple times, you will repeat the cycle to other people just because that is the way that you were taught. Um, I think it's really important for programs to kind of reverse this before it even happens. And to speak to that, um, as part of our final clinical class, we were supposed to have, unfortunately, it was all canceled due to COVID, uh, but we were supposed to have our clinical coordinators. Um, two of them were going to come and speak to tell us how to teach. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know how you can sum that up in 60 minutes, but they were going to attempt to. Um, but it was going to be a phenomenal seminar. It was our MGH um, coordinator and our Tufts coordinator coming in to speak. Um, unfortunately, I don't know what the content was going to be just because it was canceled. Um, right. But at least my program is trying to address it, which I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, SRNAs uh, reach out to me on occasion in terms of wanting to either just shoot ideas uh, around about um, graduate projects or, or to work directly with them in some sort of mentorship way. And I'm working with one SRNA right now that I think he's looking at completing this project sometime in 2021, but he's looking at that specifically. How do you train SRNAs to be clinical preceptors? Because he's also recognizing that this is not really something that is um, embedded in a lot of uh, anesthesia training programs for nurse anesthetists. So I think it's mm -hmm. interesting. I hope that um, we continue to put uh, focus on this and, uh, you know, maybe from the AANA or the Council on Accreditation might take steps in terms of, you know, encouraging programs to incorporate this kind of training um, into their you know, didactic portions. But I can certainly mm -hmm. remember, you know, we've kind of hinted around at the language a little bit, but you know, I had a, I had a preceptor when I was in school that basically, I think it was the first time that I met her. She showed up and said, you know, I just want to let you know that my clinical training program was absolute hell and yours should be no easier. Uh, so get ready for your day. And, and it was, it, it was brutal. Like it wasn't really like, she wasn't really joking and it wasn't really like a supportive, like she, she still seemed kind of damaged by that experience as her own, you know, a, a, as, as an SRNA herself, and then was kind of hell bent on propagating that. And, and I can remember, you know, I come from a background in outdoor education where, you know, we work a lot with groups and clients and adult learners and, you know, trying to optimize learning environments and getting people from point A to point B and generally have a, uh, have a good experience and, you know, think about how to do that. And I'm like, you don't, you don't have to propagate you know, your own experience as a, as an SRNA over and over and over year after year after year, you can break, you can, as a CRNA, you can choose to break that chain and you can behave differently. I think, I wonder sometimes if CRNAs know how to do that, if they know how to, you know, and what kind of education and training is out there uh, for them to be able to learn how to be better clinical preceptors. 
And it's really difficult too, because I mean, as a student, you're subjected to something like pimping. I think it's super important to read the room. If the student is freezing up, stop asking questions. Um, I myself was in a situation very new. I'm trying to intubate. I'm being asked 1 million questions and I'm just freezing up. It's just, you have to read non-verbally how the student is responding to your question and asking. And if you're not getting it anywhere, it's not an effective learning environment. Yeah. Um, so I think you need to kind of step back and the non-verbal is just so super important and it's so difficult to teach. Um, but I, I think it's really important. Yeah, I, I, to both your points, I really think there's space for us to create a curriculum to educate SRNAs and CRNAs how to be preceptors. And whether that happens during CRNA school or whether that's something that's formalized in the specific clinical sites, or maybe it's a partnership between the two. Yeah. But I definitely think there's room for people to see that precepting can look a different way than the way they experienced. Like John, in the example you just gave, you know, that person was just perpetuating what they learned. And unfortunately, I it probably didn't give them the closure that they were looking for on their SRNA experience. That's for know? sure. And so um, it would be nice to create some sort of format that people could maybe in a low stake setting have practice being on both sides of the preceptor learning curve or experience and get some feedback on how was that, you know, um, you know, communication is often an overlooked skill <laughs> for us. You know, we focus on things like airway management and pharmacological knowledge, but communication is very challenging and so vital to so many aspects of our clinical practice, whether it's getting consent, communicating during an emergency or giving feedback to a learner in a way that's constructive and not negative to support learning in a way that doesn't attack people and to read a room to know when learning is important and when getting the job done is important. Um, and that's hard to do. And it seems like we need to do a better job of laying that foundation during CRNA school and also promoting it while people continue throughout their careers. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really well said. Yeah, there's so many things in there in terms of the art of precepting there's some obviously some core information that can probably help people develop a better clinical education sense, but there's also an art to it where you are reading the room, you are working off of the personality of the learner and where that person is in their clinical training. You know, it's as a clinical coordinator at our hospital in Portland, Maine, um, it's really interesting to think about the different stages where folks can be at, you know, on day one or within the first month of clinical training to where they are as a second or third year student coming in towards the end of their program, it there's there's a there's a huge gap in terms of clinical knowledge and experience and training and the level of support that individuals need uh, on the two ends of that spectrum, which can really uh, dramatically shape the way that you interact with folks. So, um, so yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting topic, and I'm glad that we're talking about it. Um, but I'd like to pivot and talk a little bit more about ways that anesthesia providers can address workplace incivility by creating healthier work environments. So, uh, Josh, I wonder what comes to mind when you think about ways that CRNAs can accomplish that. Well, the American Academy of Critical Care Nurses defines a healthy work environment as one that's safe and respectful of the needs and contributions of all people to promote patient safety but also to enhance staff well-being and help organizations sustain stability. And so they identify a few standards like skilled communication, like we talked about, true collaboration, effective decision-making, 
staffing, meaningful recognition, and authentic leadership. It was all being components wrapped into what a healthy work environment should include. And based on some surveys that I've collected, it seems like authentic leadership and a skilled communication are deemed to be the most important among CRNAs. And I can understand why. Oftentimes, it's chief CRNAs, clinical leaders, you know, hospital administrators that are best positioned to implement and uphold policies and resources supporting healthy work environments, like a zero tolerance policy to address incivility. And this policy needs to be explicit on what it is and is not acceptable behavior and what mediation looks like for offenders. In regards to skill communication, this can help decrease the prevalence of incivility by allowing potential offenders to express themselves more effectively. And it also helps victims and witnesses to respond more appropriately to disruptive acts as opposed to contributing to them. So I think leadership support of zero tolerance policies and clinicians improvement and communication are best initial steps forward when it comes to decreasing instability and also promoting a healthy work environment. Yes, I want to follow up on the zero tolerance thing. And and you mentioned that there would be some sort of a uh, remediation process around that. So can you add a little bit more specifics to that? What So so someone has an outburst, uh, they are incivil in some way. What what does a zero tolerance policy look like in practice? Is that person immediately fired? Are they mentored? Are they coached? Is there a sit down meeting? What kinds of things would be effective? I think a zero tolerance policy does, doesn't mean that the person is necessarily immediately fired, but like we would with any medication error, we would look at a root cause analysis so we can make changes in the system to best support our clinicians and patients moving forward. So like we said, incivility can be multifactorial, but it takes a conversation to understand what were the factors that contributed to that emotional outburst. Maybe something profound happened in that person's life that day. Does it make sense that they you know, um, express those feelings inappropriately during an operation? No, but it makes more, more sense on how we can best address it. So I think a zero tolerance policy carves out that these are the steps we take to figure out why this incivility happened and how we can prevent them moving forward and how we can support victims, um, you know, of responding in a positive way and also establish a just culture that witnesses feel comfortable speaking up against incivility. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great um, outline that you just provided. The idea that, uh, you know, creating and fostering a just culture that actually has some sort of teeth to it, not necessarily in a, in a retribution standpoint, though that might be part of it, but just saying that, if something happens, we're going to address it. We're going to, just like an error clinically or a medication error, which is what you mentioned. If something happens, we're going to take a look at it and we're going to address it and we're going to follow up on it. Uh, I think that's a great start for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. And, and no matter of what the person's role is or the power dynamic, like Kelly spoke to, I mean, oftentimes we hear things like, sure, but they're a terrific clinician. Or, you know, I wouldn't take it personally. This person does that to everyone. You know, those things really um, hide the incivility that happens within the clinical setting. And if we did the same thing with medical errors, we wouldn't have the kind of advancements we have in medication safety like we do now. So it's important that we speak up and address these so we can make the healthcare system better moving forward. Yeah. Kelly, any thoughts on that? I would just like to echo everything that Josh said. And also it's important to have ongoing education about this. Conflict management when those incidences do arise, stress management and wellness programs as well in the workplace. 
Yeah. One of the things that I, I want to talk a little bit more about are like the hierarchy differences that are present in healthcare and how that can create power dynamics and maybe give people um, a sense of license to behave in a certain way, to be derogatory towards others or condescending or whatever. It's interesting. One of the anesthesia residents that I, that I work with it um, here in Portland, Maine is forming her senior presentation around the idea of vulnerability in healthcare. So she's looking at the idea of different healthcare providers who come from different backgrounds. So a surgeon or a physician anesthesiologist or a respiratory therapist or a nurse anesthetist or a registered nurse or uh, physician assistant. So we're all in healthcare and we all work together and we all have different strengths and weaknesses and backgrounds and trainings and et cetera. And she's kind of noticed in her anesthesia training that she doesn't really know a lot about, um, you know, the, the backgrounds and training and experience of these other healthcare providers because she's just been on her own track for a long time. And obviously she's very knowledgeable and, you know, an expert clinician in terms of anesthesia, but she's wanting to take a closer look and to speak to that idea of people from different backgrounds being vulnerable and recognizing that, you know, someone else, even though they may not be an attending surgeon, they may have something to contribute to how we're approaching the surgical case or, you know, just having that respect of other providers with different trainings. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, um, either of you. Um, yeah, I think we all come in with certain strengths and weaknesses. And I think the vulnerability aspect, it's very important to embrace our weaknesses and know what they are um, just to contribute to the overall goal of safe and effective care. Um, I'm a little bit biased, but I think us coming in with this critical care background is an enormous positive aspect Um, I mean, for example, we are going through a shortage of propofol right now, and I'm currently working in a COVID ICU still. And if you have someone who's 200 kilos, we only have 50 cc bottles of propofol. So you're going through a 50 cc bottle of propofol every 15 to 30 minutes. Um, some like little ICU tricks that we can use. So I piggybacked my propofol into my propofol to make a hundred cc's total. So that would be just a small example of how we can fix simple problems just using our critical care background. So I think we should embrace each other's strengths, but also really identify our own weaknesses just to make sure that we do provide the safest and most effective care. Yeah. Josh, any, any ideas on uh, various healthcare providers being vulnerable in terms of their knowledge and experience with one another? Well, I, first off, John, I really want to commend you both for working on this topic, you and the anesthesia resident, especially among providers where vulnerability might not be readily in our skill set. You know, and I want to recognize the importance of this collaboration. Like healthcare has the potential to be somewhat tribal, as you kind of described, which creates the potential for interdisciplinary conflicts. And so projects and committees inclusive of diverse role groups are more reflective of how our patients get cared for in clinical practice. Yeah. Um, so I think it's great for this collaboration. One way we try to embrace this at Northeastern is, you know, we have pharmacists from MGH come and guest lecture in our pharmacology and anesthesia course. And so not only do our SRNAs have the opportunity to learn more from like these content experts, but they learn how to collaborate with other role groups, a skill that is essential to anesthesia practice and maybe one that we don't get as much exposure to in a formal way. So the more connections and relationships, you know, CRNAs make with other clinicians, I think the more we deconstruct the tribalism in healthcare that can really contribute to instability. 
it actually was very interesting when this resident approached me because um, she wanted advice on her topic. She wanted to see if I had any input into the way that she was approaching this topic. You know, it wasn't just her own thoughts on, hey, we're all different and, and how can I speak to that? But she was actively pursuing uh, the input of others who have different backgrounds, even even in her presentation of how to address the topic of vulnerability recognizing that, you know, she may not have um, the entire perspective available. So I think it's very interesting when we can break down those barriers. And it goes back to what Kelly mentioned earlier, you know, that we're all human first, and then we pursue our respective clinical training programs. Uh, And then we all come together to provide cohesive, hopefully multidisciplinary care of patients. Uh, Mm -hmm. So vulnerability helps pave that way. I wonder what advice would you all give SRNAs specifically who are bullied in the clinical setting or who are put down or excessively criticized uh, during clinicals? Um, I would like to say that they could call or email me at any time. Um, And again, develop some sort of personal mantra. I know it sounds crazy, but mine was everything is temporary. And if you just repeat it in your head over and over, it will be some form of stress relief for you and just focusing on you need to get out of here at 5 p.m. and you need to regroup by tomorrow morning. And even though today was horrific, the next will not be as bad. And in the very beginning for me, um, things things were kind of bad, um, but you just focused on that steady improvement that you saw every single day. And if you focused on that steady improvement, you would see that you were having way more positive days than negative days. Again, guided imagery also helped me a lot that valley trick with the stop sign. Um, it actually helped me during my boards as well. As I went past question 100, I visualized the stop sign as I had a literal panic attack. Um, <laughs> and it actually really ramped things down for me. I was really impressed with how well it worked for me. Um, so again, focus on something that works for your own stress relief. Those things don't help. And again, I'm always here for support. If you need anything at all, please feel free to reach out. Oh, that's great, Kelly. Thanks for that offer. Um, and we can get your contact information in the show notes to yep. the show. Josh, any advice that you would give to SRNAs who you experience bullying in the clinical setting? Yeah, I mean, addressing workplace incivility can be so hard. Uh, even myself, someone who's really passionate about healthy work environments and promoting collegiality, it can be really hard for me as well. So I can understand that all the barriers that SRNAs experience when they think about speaking up. But it's so important that SRNA speak up against incivility, especially uh, like telling your clinical coordinators and your didactic faculty members when it occurs. And to CRNA leaders, you know, it's important that we promote a just culture at our workplace. So SRNAs aren't worried about being punished for speaking up. You know, changing the healthcare culture to really value cl- clinician well-being, it's just, it's just not going to be easy, but it is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for our patients, for all anesthesia professionals, and definitely for future anesthesia professionals and their future patients. So please, you can add my contact information right after Kelly's. Yeah, great. Uh, these SNAs can contact us. And, you know, we might not have the solution, but we will definitely, you know, listen and see what we can come up with together uh, when they experience this in their respective clinical settings. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for that. And we'll also put links to, and we'll talk here in a minute just about um, the resources available from the AANA and the Health and Wellness Committee and and get links up to those. Um, You know, it's interesting as a clinical coordinator um, at a a 
big hospital. I think one of my missions, I, I try to, you know, well removed from school at this point, but I try as best I can to remember my own experience. And I was always intimidated by clinical co- coordinators. You know, they, they're kind of like your boss at that uh, particular clinical site. And obviously your preceptor is, you know, kind of your uh, mentor and guide and also potential punisher, you know, for that particular clinical <laughs> shift. And, you know, cause if you mess up, like it, it's either going to the clinical coordinator or uh, the program director, you know, if it's severe enough in the preceptor's eyes. So I was always a little intimidated by clinical coordinators uh, during my own training. But now that I am one, I think I try to remember that and make that explicitly clear to the SRNAs that I work with that I, I'm there to help support them. Uh, I'm there to set a tone in terms of, you know, expecting excellence, but also recognize that they're learners. Like they didn't show up with it all figured out. And I want them to hear crystal clear from the beginning and all the way through the program that I'm their number one advocate in the clinical setting and try to invite that space for them to speak up if they're experiencing, you know, bullying or workplace incivility or, or, or a clinical error that they're nervous about or, you know, tore up about, I want to foster that openness and for them to come and speak to me. And I hope that other, you know, preceptors and clinical coordinators out that out there set that set a similar tone with SRNAs that if you, it's amazing uh, what it will mean for someone if you just tell them at the start of a clinical shift, you know, as a preceptor, I want you to be successful. And I'm here to help coach you through the day, we're going to try to have a good day and work through things. But just I think as an SRNA, hearing that people have your back and they're, they're trying to create a supportive work environment can mean so much. John, do you feel like your um, the SRNAs come to you um, more because you set that tone? I mean, I don't know, right? Because <laughs> I don't know what they're <laughs> not, I don't know what they're not coming to me with. Uh, <laughs> but but in general, I I think I do, and then I try to <clears throat> I try to manage those times where they do come and speak with me in a very receptive way where they have my attention. I take their concerns seriously. I follow up on those so that they, that they learn that like, okay, he's, he's, he's serious, but he's about me coming to him, but he's also going to address whatever those concerns are and try to make things different. And, you know, being a new clinical coordinator, um, it has helped me grow in the position. You know, I ask for feedback, going back to vulnerability. I recognize that I don't have it all figured out yet, that we're all on this journey and we can all continue to improve um, our clinical skills, but also our clinical teaching skills. Uh, so I look for that feedback from them. But I think I think that they do come uh, more frequently. But it's something that I feel like I always have to explicitly state. I don't want to take it for granted that they just know that they can. Yeah, that sentiment really resonates with me as a new clinical professor. It's a tone that I also really felt strongly about that you know, maybe we can provide education in CRNA school in a more compassionate and empathetic way. And so I tried to like set that tone. And I thought like my office was going to just be like full of students wanting to talk to me. <laughs> I, my office he even has small. a couch. He even has yeah. a couch. Nice. I got a, I got a couch. Literally no one uses it. No one, uh, comes. you know, and, and maybe, that, maybe that just takes groundwork, <laughs> you know, and at least letting them know that door is open. Um, you know, I think, I, I wonder, Kelly, you know, I feel like students will first go to their peers before they go to their clinical coordinators yeah. or their faculty. Do you think I'm yeah. off on that? No, I, I would agree. And I would think they would go to the, like, 
the um, mentors or preceptors at their individual clinical sites. No offense, Josh, before they no. came to see you. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> oh my God, that sounds terrible. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, it's honest. That's good feedback. <laughs> um, <laughs> if I ever had an issue, I'd probably address it with a source um, just because it's the most effective thing. And typically the only issue that I would have would be a clinical issue. Um, just, I don't know, there's not many classroom issues. It's pretty cut and dry there. Um, so I would usually address that with like my clinical coordinator or the preceptor that I had an issue with or whatever. Um, but just speaking to your point about addressing vulnerability at the beginning of the day, um, I thought my favorite preceptors, that was the most helpful thing. Um, just establishing that they were there to support me. Um, and they would also establish goals in the beginning of the day of things that I wanted to accomplish. And then at the end of the day, they would ask me, how do you feel like it went? Uh, what could you improve upon? What were your strengths and weaknesses? And I felt like that really, that really resonated with me because it really summed up what I did during the day. It really like highlighted the skills that I've learned over the day. And, um, it just made me leave in a more positive light. Um, so I really enjoyed that and I'm hoping to kind of emulate that as a preceptor. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that, you know, for the preceptors out there recognizing that SRNAs come as highly educated, experienced clinicians who are adult learners who are probably pretty motivated to be successful. I think like, like get, get some baseline assumptions oriented. Um, I think it can be so difficult for both the SRNA and CRNAs to deal with that uh, novice to expert skill, right? Because like SRNAs mm-hmm. come in as really proficient, if not expert critical care nurses, but just de facto, cause you're doing something different. You're, you're kind of back at that novice level. You're, you feel like you're yeah. all thumbs the first several it's a real weeks lockdown. Of, <laughs> yeah. It's and it, and it's, you're right. Like it is a bummer. Uh, you can be sad about it. You can be frustrated. You can be depressed about that. You can be like, what did I get myself into? I thought I was good at doing my job here. I am an adult with, you know, five, 10, 15 years of critical care experience and you just struggle uh, in anesthesia. And I think it can be difficult for CRNAs to remember that because the further we get away from our own clinical experience, we just think that people should have stuff figured out, you know? Uh, so there's very basic basic things, Kelly, that you talked about in terms of like, you know, stating that uh, a preceptor is there to support the SRNA can be super helpful. And then setting goals. And to me, I'd do something different, similar, just asking what the SRNA's goal is is for the day because where like they're the best identifiers of their own progress and learning you know maybe they haven't they like they need to work on direct laryngoscopy more maybe they want to work on masking or or pull out the bougie or you know uh pull out neostigmine instead of always using sugaminex or whatever so mm-hmm. um i think srnas really have a have, generally have a good handle on where their growth needs to happen. And so just having those open conversations can explicitly can really help kind of smooth things out along the way. Mm -hmm. John, to your point, one of the things that I find myself exhibiting uh, when I'm working with SRNAs as a preceptor is sometimes I find myself being impatient. You know, I'm not yelling, I'm not, you know, being outright and civil, but just demonstrating impatience, which, um, you know, which is something that also is incivility and should be treated as such. Uh, I saw an article uh, by Katz and colleagues where they had two groups. It was a simulation for surgery, and um, the, and it was between anesthesia residents as the participants. And for the clinical scenarios, they were identical, but within the two groups, 
one group had a surgeon actor that was courteous and the other one had a surgeon actor that was impatient. Okay, no screaming, no yelling, no <laughs> profanity, just demonstrated impatience. And during this scenario, when the patient, it was a laparoscopic procedure and the patient started bleeding, after the procedure, they found that the um, anesthesia residents that were in the group that had the quote unquote rude surgeon um, demonstrated lower technical and non-technical skills on all levels. So they were less likely uh, when the patient started to hemorrhage, they were less likely to decrease their anesthetic agent. They're less likely to place a second IV, request blood, or even request help from another anesthesia provider. And interestingly, participants, no matter what group, they thought they performed the same way. So they didn't even appreciate how the incivility from the surgeon impacted their performance. And that was just based on impatience, which I think really speaks to the fact how incivility isn't only important to clinician well-being, but also is directly correlated to patient safety and needs to be addressed in the same fashion. Well, yeah, and I think that's the power of this whole, like if if you're still listening and you're not convinced yet, right, um, that's the power of this conversation is that it's not just about, hey, this is a good idea or this is a touchy-feely topic, but if you truly want to be an expert clinician, if you want to empower those around you to perform at the highest levels of their own individual human performance, then being kind, being considerate, communicating openly, being respectful that paves the way for teams to achieve a high level of performance. So uh, I definitely appreciate you pointing out that um, in that study. That's super interesting. Uh, I wonder, as we kind of close out here, a lot of S, well, all SRNAs are expected to create some form of a, oh, hang on. Let me actually, before I ask that question, uh, Kelly, it is definitively going to be your responsibility to push this podcast out to all the SRNAs at Northeastern. <laughs> and I, Josh, I fully expect for your couch to, henceforth to be full. <laughs> okay. It's a small office. It's not that large of a couch. Northeastern SRNAs. Y'all need to, y'all need to get in there and sit on that couch and ask Josh some questions or just go, go hang out. <laughs> Josh, I think you need a Keurig in there. You might get yeah. more visitors with a Keurig. <laughs> You're right. Caffeine is really our currency. Yeah. There, there you go. There you go. All right. I, I want, I want to update on the couch in a couple of months. <laughs> I will, I will circle back. All right. Great. All right. So speaking of SRNAs being in grad school, so everyone's looking to do some sort of a capstone project. So, uh, or paper as part of their, as part of their program. So, uh, I wonder if either of you could kind of frame this topic of workplace incivility, bullying, clinical preceptorship, uh, training to become a clinical educator. If, if there's any ideas that come to mind on how to frame that for the SRNAs who may be listening out there or the residents in the anesthesia in terms of how to turn this into further research or a clinical transformation project of some, of some sort. Um, so I, I'm going to look at this at a slightly different light, um, just because my dissertation was on caregiver burden and I learned about resilience in the process. I think that resilience can be taught and I think it would be a useful seminar to have prior to the initiation of the first clinical uh, rotation that we have. Um, so I did a deep dive on resilience and the Army actually has something called Master Resilience Training. And it's a 10-day program that's been offered since 2009, and it's been studied pretty extensively by UPenn. 
And it's been demonstrated to really increase a soldier's resilience in a stressful situation. And I think it's really transferable to uh, the medical setting. Basically, there are six basic competencies, self-awareness, so identifying your own thoughts and emotions in response to the situation, self-regulation, so regulating your own impulses and emotions, optimism, so fighting negativity bias and finding the good things in the situation, mental agility or the ability to think flexibly, and then recognizing your own strengths of character, so your own character strengths and ability to understand what you bring to the table. And then the final the final competency is a connection. So building uh, strong relationships and building excellent peer support. So the overall sentiment of this program is to bounce and not break. And I think adding this to the SRNA education, um, even if we can't address the overall problem of workplace incivility, it could teach the student how to respond better to workplace incivility and to identify that workplace incivility does exist, give them the tools to react, and then the tools to kind of break the cycle so that they don't perpetuate workplace incivility. So it's a little bit different from addressing workplace incivility in and of itself, but I think it would be a really cool thing to study to see if it makes any significant difference in the SRNA and then to study longitudinally and to see if it made any difference over time once that SRNA becomes a CRNA and is actively teaching. Yeah. So looking at looking at resilience as a topic is kind of like one of the contextual elements of workplace instability and how people respond to it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to bounce and not break. I love that phrase. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, great. That was great. Josh, any ideas? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm always interested in burnout since it's my area of research. And I'm really curious on how, you know, what the healthcare system is going to look like post pandemic and what that means for, you know, healthcare providers' levels of burnout. You know, we see that CRNA's levels of autonomy and skill variety are correlated with their levels of job satisfaction and burnout and whether they intend on leaving their jobs. And since a lot of roles for CRNAs have bent and flexed in new ways, uh, I'll be curious to see if that increases or decreases uh, burnout depending on what different institutions decided to do with their CRNAs. I'm also curious to see if afterwards, if we see an increase or a decrease in incivility? Like, will hospitals and employees be experiencing more stress so they're more incivil to each other? Or is teamwork going to prevail? I mean, personally, I was deployed to a COVID ICU and I was working with nurses, anesthesiologists, respiratory therapists in a way that I've never done before. And while the work was really hard, I have like a ton of pride for what we all accomplished together. And I hope that's something that really stays with me and translates to improved teamwork in my own practice and in uh, hospitals all across the U.S. moving forward. So hopefully we'll see a decrease in incivility because we've maybe bent or broken (laughs) the tribalism in the healthcare system. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a great way to put it. We we saw something similar here in Portland, Maine, when the CRNAs flexed into working uh, in the ICU and just, um, you know, those... uh, role differences and kind of the background differences. I mean, obviously all CRNAs have uh, clinical experiences, critical care nurses, but it was very stressful for the CRNAs to go back and work in the ICU because the, you know, predominantly the charting system and just the flow of patient care is, is so incredibly different than what we do in the OR. So it was really interesting. The ICU nurses were so grateful to have us there, but, um, 
there was also a lot of gratitude from the CRNAs that they were generally super supportive and welcoming um, of us being in the critical care setting. So we feel like those two departments in particular, and of course, like respiratory therapists and uh, the attendings in critical care and anesthesia were were all mixed into the same experience. Um, I th- we all feel that I think it pulled the various departments uh, of employees closer together during that experience. So it will be interesting to see if that last into the future. So uh, there's probably so many different types of capstone projects and papers and research that can come out of the pandemic and workplace mm-hmm. incivility, resilience, burnout, all of those things, I think will be very prevalent ideas that are kind of and experiences that are, that are floating around in healthcare right now. So uh, certainly ripe for research uh, in the future for folks to, to work on. So it'd be interesting to see some of that research come out in papers, hopefully in a year or two coming down the road. But as we wrap up, um, what resources, I know both of you have close ties to the AANA Health and Wellness Committee, having served on that committee in the past. What resources are available for that committee that may help CRNAs and SRNAs in responding to workplace incivility or burnout? So the AANA has pretty extensive uh, resources on workplace incivility, and I'm going to send in three links that I found particularly helpful. First of all, they have a stop bullying toolkit, just in case uh, you are experiencing any workplace instability. And there's just a lot of resources on that individual website, which I will send. And then there's a PDF promoting a culture of safety and a healthy work environment. And it's very helpful in defining what workplace instability is, how it physically manifests, and how to respond to it. So that was a particularly helpful guide. And then the third link will also be a PDF, the Nurse Anesthesia Leadership Survival Guide. And that actually, um, it basically helps to build a well workplace. It doesn't particularly address workplace incivility, but I think it creates an aspect of wellness in the workplace that would avoid workplace incivility. So it's all about building strong relationships and addressing sensitive topics in the workplace and collaboration. Um, so I will send those along. Oh, that's great. Super. Uh, Josh, how about you? Anything that you'd want to promote in terms of the health and wellness committee, or I also know you're on the board of the, uh, anesthesia patient safety foundation. So if you could speak to that and, uh, if they've addressed this in the past or have resources available for anesthesia providers. Absolutely. Um, for those not familiar with APSF, it's an organization whose vision is that no one should be harmed under anesthesia care. And for the past few years, promoting a culture of safety through teamwork and collegial interactions has been a top patient safety initiative for APSF. So I encourage everyone to, you know, visit their website at APSF.org, where you can find some terrific articles from past APSF newsletters on clinician well-being. In fact, the June issue of the APSF newsletter includes an article about effective leadership and patient safety culture which covers things that we talked about today, incivility, psychological safety, and burnout. Um, and for those interested in staying connected on other patient safety topics, you know, please connect with APSF's dynamic communication team on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Um, but it has a wealth of information in regards to patient safety, but especially clinician well-being. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we'll put a link to that um, June article for sure in the show notes. So the, the resources are still available to CRNAs, they just have to go directly to APSF. Is that correct? Yeah. And honestly, John, that's actually my preferred means of getting it because I don't <laughs> like mail. Um, and that might be, <laughs> you know, 
you know, that might, it just gets lost in my CVS ads, you know, that, <laughs> that might be a generational thing. So I actually prefer the online version, which I think the online version is great because you can easily share it with students. Um, you can easily search it and you know, it's up to date. Um, and I can have it on my phone, which I'll use like, uh, you know, in between cases. And so we can include that link and all people have to do is put their email address. And when the new, um, like June issue comes out, it'll be, uh, sent to them in their email. Okay. So, so it's free. You don't, you don't have to like be a paid member. No, it's free. Okay, great. Super. So we'll definitely get that link in, which is amazing. Like, like the best things in life. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Like this podcast. That was a good plug. There you go. Uh, well, on that note, is there anything else that either of you would like to say on workplace incivility, bullying, resilience, uh, any final thoughts for the CRNAs and SRNAs out there who may be listening? You can go first, Josh. I have to gather my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Um... First off, I just want to thank you and be excited that you are interested in a future in anesthesia care. Um, it's a terrific profession. And while, you know, today we discussed some of the minority experiences that can be really challenging, um, I think it's important to remember that overall, nurse anesthetists love their job. You've picked a terrific career. And it's important moving forward to contribute to positive experiences for future CRNAs. Um, and we can change that, uh, but it will take work. And it's important work to do, but we can absolutely do it together. Oh, that's well said, Josh. Uh, Kelly, any, any closing thoughts? I completely agree. And again, for any SRNAs struggling, please feel free to reach out and uh, find some means of stress relief that works for you that you can utilize during your day. And just remember, everything is temporary. You can get through it. And thank you so much for having us both on here and for highlighting workplace and civility. And thank you, Josh, for participating. It was really great. I had fun. It was great. Thanks for having me. Oh, good. You're, you're going to have more people to your couch immediately. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Hope that couch fills up. Well, thanks so much to you both. I appreciate the work that you do. Uh, Kelly, congratulations on wrapping up your anesthesia training and passing board successfully. Uh, I hope you. you're able, yeah, I hope you're able to transition out of the ICU um, as quickly as possible and uh, oh, me too. have a, have a super long and fun career as a, uh, as a CRNA and Josh, thanks so much with your, uh, for your work at the APSF and Northeastern and all you do to help educate, um, CRNAs and SRNAs and the whole anesthesia uh, community out there through um, APSF on what it takes to create a, a healthy work environment and a, and a positive culture. So uh, thanks so much for both of you for contributing to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, John. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.